Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming straight from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner, and I'll be your host today, along with our engineer, Troy Eller-English. Say hello, Troy. Hello, Dan. So this interview um, for this podcast was done by uh, Megan Courtney. She is our outreach archivist, and um, she talked to Andreas Meiris. He's actually from George Washington University. He's a PhD candidate in history, I assume, who um, is doing his research on the Brookwood Labor College. Now, what's cool about the Brookwood Labor College is it was created in the early 20s. And at that time, if you remember, historians out there, that after 1919, labor was in the throes of being almost destroyed. It was being kicked around. Anyway, I was on vacation when we recorded this in the summer. And what's interesting is I was in Utah, right? I was in Park City, and I took the kids to a historical museum up there. And it's on the site of an old jailhouse. So in the basement, they had all the jail cells set up. It was pretty cool. But Troy, I was talking to my kids saying, where's labor? This is a history of coal mining. And this was a huge area for the IWW and other, other mine unions. But in one of the jail cells, there was the whole history of labor. And I was like, of course they put labor in the jail cell. <laughs> Doesn't that make sense? But then I turned the corner and looking in there, and they had graffiti of the Wobblies who were jailed there during the teens. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. And so it reminded me of Joe Hill, of course, and how that was a part of the destruction of labor. And so now that I know that we're talking about Brookwood, it was like, oh, all right. Brookwood, coming out of the ashes of what the labor movement was going through in the 20s, was educating the future leaders. I thought that you were going to suggest that you leave your children in the jail cells. That's where I thought that story was going. <laughs> and there are moments but I would never do that. Those are my kids. <laughs> no. Um, one takeaway, I listened to the interview, and it's great, of course. And one thing I took away from this is what, not only were they training these new labor leaders. I mean, you had the Ruther brothers there. You had a bunch of other people there. So they were training them, getting them ready. And as we know, in the 30s, massive organizing. But they were creating a narrative for unions to use, training people to write, to be labor press, to be labor journalists. We don't have that anymore. From the research from um, our Fishman awardee, Andreas Meiris, uh, we will find out the history and make sure it doesn't repeat itself. Or maybe repeat itself, because this is a pretty cool thing, right? And also, you know, the, the faculty, AFT members. Fantastic. It was, and that's another story. <laughs> Take it away, Megan. <laughs> So welcome uh, to the podcast. Um, this is Megan Courtney doing the interviewing today, standing in for Dan Galadner. Um, and we are welcoming Andreas Myris. Correct, yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> Sometimes uh, Dan has a hard time with the pronunciation, so I'm glad I got that right. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about the research that you are here um, doing this week. So I'm here specifically looking at the records for Brookwood Labor College, uh, which is a part of my dissertation on labor and politics during the 1920s. Okay. 
Um, and tell us about the title. So you're talking about transnational radicalism, right? Yeah. In this broader context. Mm -hmm. um, what is that? How does Brookwood kind of fit into that that bigger project that you're working on? Right. Um, so the quote, democracy is spreading the world, which I use for kind of my tentative title, is a quote from Robert La Follette when he ran for president in 1924. La Follette was a Wisconsin senator at the time, and he ran as an independent that year. And that's what first kind of brought me into this project. Uh, just that quote is something he said at a campaign rally in, uh, in kind of southern Illinois. And he was talking about uh, the British Labor Party and the French kind of uh, left coalition that just were swept into power in both of those countries. And so he was suggesting that his audience knew about those, uh, those events and also kind of were in sympathy with them. So I kind of wanted to look more into that. And I found that a lot of the people who backed his campaign, like uh, uh, National Women's Trade Union League, member Rose Schneiderman and uh, Fanny Cohn and A.J. Musty were all really enthusiastic supporters of his campaign. And they all, around the same time, 1923, joined the staff and uh, at, at Brookwood Labor College. And so I knew I wanted to know more about it. And that kind of led me here. And I found some really cool stuff so far. Good. Okay. <laughs> that's that's always what we want to hear. Yeah. Um, so in 23, you mentioned that a lot of these people are there at Brookwood. Mm -hmm. That's relatively early in, in Brookwood's kind of trajectory, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it kind of formally gets started around 1920, 21, but it's very small. Um, and it's not until 23 that they really organ organize kind of a center, a central council and, uh, and, and labor board. Uh, they, they call their kind of equivalent to trustees, I guess, the Labor Cooperating Committee, because they're all trade unionists. And the idea is that um, they want the college to be run by trade unionists for trade unionists. It's a really uh, profound educational experience to train new organizers and union members to really promote the cause of labor. Cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it seems like wh what kind of philosophy surrounds the the founding of Brookwood around that time? What kind of what kind of coursework are they trying to do? What kind of lessons are they trying to teach? Do you, have you gotten a sense of that? Yeah. Um, so they teach labor history and they teach kind of the fundamentals of organizing. There's like management courses, kind of like how to run paperwork and uh, how to, you know, during a strike, make sure payments and things like that are going out. And so there's, there's that aspect to it. But then there's also just courses on writing, on English, because a lot of the people who come to Brookwood Labor College, English is a second language. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's people who speak Yiddish, Russian, German, Italian. So, uh, so there are kind of fundamental courses like that. But uh, probably the one that they talk about most and what they're most excited about is labor journalism. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, the idea being that, you know, the mainstream press can never get labor's cause right when they write about it. But yeah, you know, still kind of the case. Um, but uh, so they wanted to train a cadre of labor journalists who were able to cover these articulately and well. Hmm. And so there's a lot of that that goes on over the decade. Okay. And so you're finding kind of evidence of that in the records here at Thurther? Definitely. Um, so 
a few of the things I found um, in terms of labor journalism was uh, there was the Federated Labor Press, okay. which wasn't part of Brookwood, but it was a attempt that came about in the 20s to create a kind of associated press equivalent for labor where they send uh, people out into the field to uh, – so when there's a small strike or like a new union local formed, there's a, a centralized place where that news goes to so that all of the uh, labor journals in the country, which there were many at this point, like most towns had a labor journal of some kind, uh, could kind of catch up on that news. And there's a lot of correspondence between the Federated Press and A.J. Musty going on. Um, there was also a brief experiment called the Brookwood Labor Education Service which was a column written by Brookwood's staff um, that was syndicated to, I found evidence of 175 different labor newspapers. And the idea being that uh, that Musty or someone else would write a column to do with, you know, labor concerns of the day. Mm. And that this was very, like, widely received. Everyone thought it was... A good idea and so a lot of a lot of people took this up so that's more evidence of Brookwood really being kind of a a central place in the 1920s labor movement of experimentation of adult education of finding a new way to restart kind of labor militancy yeah so Musty, we mentioned his name a couple of times. Mm -hmm. He's the is is his title president he's the the leader in some way of the college right yeah he's uh he's the I guess, chairman of the university, president okay. of the university. I can't remember his exact title now, but yeah. he's basically the face right. of it. For most of its, its, its time as a college, right? Correct. Okay. Um, he, he, gets its, he gets started with it in the early 20s, and at that time he, uh, he was a minister. Uh, he was in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, so he was a big pacifist during World War One, and he had a lot of sympathy with labor. So uh, he was tapped to uh, start this project, and he brought in people like uh, John Fitzpatrick, who's in the Chicago Federation of Labor and who, in 1919, helped start the massive steel strike in the Chicago area. He brings in Rose Schneiderman, Fanny Cohn, um, and, and, and a few others. So it's a... So he was kind of the face and remained so until the early 1930s when he got uh, – one thing about Musty is that he wears many hats. Okay. And uh, he starts a group called the CPLA, the Conference for Progressive Labor Action, which he's determined will restart labor militancy, take on the American Federation of Labor. Mm. And basically the members of Brookwood say that you can't have your own – labor organization and be the president of this university, which claims no actual affiliation with any group. So mm. he leaves and kind of takes that on. Oh, that's interesting. So there are a lot of people, um, well-known names in labor that, yeah. are, that are part of this college. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned a little bit kind of the, the tension between sort of trade unionism versus industrial unionism. Right, yeah. So how did the faculty actually approach that? Did you get any sense of that from the records, what, what their real philosophy might be or how they lean uh, yeah, so there's there's almost no question that they want to organize the unorganized. Um, you know, bringing Fitzpatrick on is kind of, you know, really 
direct because he started this massive steel strike. He's been trying to, you know, stoke the militancy in that regard for a long time. And they make no secret uh, in their various newspapers. The Brookwood Review is the student run paper that I found evidence just recently uh, talking about something else I found that was really interesting uh, that there were papers all over the world that received copies of the Brookwood Review. Really? Yes. Uh, so the the uh, International Labor Organization, which was part of the um, uh, League of Nations, uh-huh. uh, took in copies of the Brookwood Review as wow. it was published. Um, the British Labor Party. Uh, so Arthur Henderson, who was a member of parliament, the first home secretary in a labor government ever in 1924, like wrote Musty and said, hey, you know, we we're, we decided we're going to start sending Brookwood free copies of our journal. Can you please send us copies of the Brookwood Review? Wow. And so it's a it's pretty wild. It's um, a small school, right? The it is. is... They, they have like maybe 50 students a year or yeah. something like that. So <laughs> 50 so, influential students then. Yes. Uh Rose Pizzotta uh, gets her start there. And in the in the 30s, uh, you have the Ruther brothers and you have Paulie Murray and Ella Baker, I think, too. Um, so, like, you know, it's wow. a... So, yeah, there are a lot of people who wander through this school. So determining its, its influence is hard because, you know, it's a small school. But you can tell that there are people really interested in it and there's a collaborative spirit going on. And, uh, and that some of the people who come through this university become widely influential. Uh, Mm -hmm. Speaking of the Ruther brothers, I also found that they held a conference in 1927 about how to organize the auto industry. Oh, really? So that was before the the Ruthers were there. But, you know, it's it's on everyone's radar at Brookwood. So they hold these conferences about these massive industries that haven't been organized yet. And they're talking about it. Uh, The other newspaper that they're sort of associated with is a monthly called Labor Age. Okay. And um, and so in the 30s, it becomes pretty much connected to the CPLA, which Musty starts. But before that, there's a lot of crossover between Brookwood and Labor Age. And they are constantly writing about the need to go after industrial workers. Right. So, you know, unskilled workers. Yes. That had, they, they didn't make sense to be part of these sort of guilds, but, right. but there are a lot of them and they mm-hmm. are being used. And so um, that's a... It's a really interesting shift that you're seeing right around the same time as Brookwood is is really flourishing. Absolutely. And uh, and so most of the time when Brookwood comes up in general studies, it's to talk about how the AFL expels them uh-huh. eventually. Uh, so <laughs> they gave money at first. They right? did. They did. I found, you know, Sam Gompers endorses Brookwood at yeah. the start. The Railroad Brotherhoods uh, send students, the United Mine Workers, the... Garment Workers Union and the uh, Amalgamated Clothing Workers. Well, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers aren't in the AFL at the time, I think. But uh, but they're really enthusiastic about it. So you're right. Like, they're connected. They send money. They correspond. Um, as best as I could tell, what happens is uh, around 28, uh, various, various members of the AFL's leadership determine that Brookwood is sympathetic to communism. Mm. And uh, they they never formally like reprimand or expel Brookwood. There's not really a vote in that regard. But what they do is they tell their their constituent membership to not send students or money to Brookwood. So in effect, it's they're cutting Brookwood out of the equation at that point. Now, uh, the protest is pretty funny because 
on Brookwood's board, I haven't found any actual members of the Communist Party. Um, there were communist students there uh-huh. uh, because they took in everyone regardless of party affiliation. But it wasn't a communist school. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised at the end of the day that the AFL made this move because Brookwood was basically critiquing craft unionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was the basis of how the Federation worked. So, you know, that's really what caused that split, I think. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it definitely sounds like there are some changes happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the school only lasts until 37. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, have you found any evidence um, in the collections about kind of how that came to pass, how things went there in the mid-30s? Because those are... Um, some interesting years, just what's happening in labor generally. Mm-hmm. By 37, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of shifts, especially in the UAW. The Ruthers are, you know, doing yeah. sit-downs. So um, talk a little bit about the school's demise, if you will. So I haven't looked at too much stuff in the 30s because that's a little past what I'm where I'm hoping to end oh, yeah. my project. But um, I, what, what I think happened more or less is that the school ran out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, they had been dependent on scholarships from unions, uh, which, of course, unions came under financial stress during the Great Depression. Uh, so that was a loss of funding. They were funded heavily by the Garland Fund or the American Fund, which was a wealthy benefactor who put a lot of money into a trust to give loans to progressive causes. And this lasts for quite a while. It's managed well, but eventually that runs dry. And um yeah, at, at the end of the 20s when the AFL kind of severs ties, that's also a big financial blow. So it seems like what happened was that they just were, weren't able to really keep the doors open. And you could see immediately, like by 24, 25, they're really fundraising aggressively. And Musty is constantly writing letters to union heads asking for donations and scholarships. So mm-hmm. it's yeah. not unreasonable to to guess that. They, they just didn't have the funds to yeah. continue. I think that I read that um, So there there was a tuition charge, but that mm-hmm. a lot of those were covered by scholarships from outside sources. Correct. I think I saw in the mid-20s at least uh, that tuition was somewhere around $500 a year, give or take. Mm-hmm. And so a $1,000 donation from a union would cover two scholarships, and that's most of the time what they asked for. 500 bucks during the depression is a lot yeah yeah it really is and it it might have gone up you know over time so uh yeah it's a lot of money to to fork over wow for sure the other thing that i i found about 37 there was a 15 year anniversary of brookwood in 1936 where they brought in a lot of sponsors and had a fancy dinner Mm -hmm. and a lot of the names i expected uh but some of them i i didn't like reinhold niebuhr was was on the list um tell me about him a little bit uh uh, he was a uh a a protestant theologian oh okay uh, who actually also got a start in the 20s in detroit Hmm. i think and wrote a book about the labor industry in detroit and the church's obligation to uh to like organize workers basically. And uh, he wrote uh, a lot of popular books on political theory in the 1930s and became kind of a, a standing American intellectual mm-hmm. uh, and an anti-communist by the 1940s and 50s. Uh, he was sort of tangential uh, to the uh, uh, popular front in the 30s, but kind of moves 
away from that mm. as his career goes on. But, uh, you know, he was he was associated with Brookwood, it seems, but also George Meany. Really? Uh, yes. <laughs> which is which surprised me because, uh, you know, he he was a member of the AFL, obviously. And uh, and at the time he was in charge of the New York State Federation of Labor, okay. which famously cut ties with Brookwood in 1929. Hmm. Uh, so it, it, it shows that over time, you know, the message that Brookwood was was holding up became more accepted. In a way. So, uh, you know, its legacy was maybe a bit murky at first, but kind of cleared up by the time the Depression came around. Mm. Do you think that that's a change in, in Brookwood's philosophy or sort of a general societal acceptance of a little bit more progressive politics? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that Brookwood changed its message too much over time. Uh, it, at least it doesn't seem that way. But I do think that, you know, industrial unionism took off in a big way mm -hmm. in the 1930s with the founding of the CIO uh, and the United Auto Workers. So it's a uh, so I think those massive unions coming about uh, during the Great Depression kind of showed that maybe Brookwood had a point. OK. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They just had to prove it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, wait it out. Um, and that's the whole thing that I'm finding, you know, writing about the 20s, which is not the most obvious time to write about labor history. You know, it's it's admittedly a horrible time for organized labor. Uh, they're not doing well. Unions are kind of closing their doors. Company unions are, are huge. Um, and so, but I, I wanted to see what the connections were between the 20s and 30s in the interwar period mm -hmm. generally and also look at international connections and show why in the 1920s when this kind of progressive view of labor and politics generally is so seemingly discredited by what happened in World War One afterwards, how they sought to rebrand their image and kind of emerge out of that and change how they thought about things previously to attract the masses again mm -hmm. and... Uh, and Brookwood, I think, was a major part of, of that project. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, so if, you, if you're seeing this kind of eruption of labor in the 30s, then mm -hmm. something must be happening to set that off. Something must <laughs> yeah. be, you know, people must be getting yeah. ready in some way that's kind of uh, under the radar, but people have to be making those connections and learning their, their tools of the trade. So I think that's really interesting um, that you would kind of connect that to Brookwood. Mm-hmm. Um, what other things did you find, have you found so far um, in the collection that made you, I know that when I do research in our collections, mm -hmm. after a couple minutes, I'll find something and I'm like, I got to show somebody this. Yeah. So do you, yeah. <laughs> do you have any of those moments you'd like to share? Or? <laughs> uh, so one of them I brought up uh, earlier, and that was the British Labor Party mm -hmm. and the International Labor Organization find. The fact that I found direct evidence that, you know, a British member of parliament was writing Brookwood asking for their student newspaper yeah. was, was pretty wild. Um, other, other organizations that asked for the Brookwood review were the, uh, LA public library and the Cleveland public library. So cool. pretty big cities that were asking for subscriptions of this very small newspaper. Uh, so that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, did you see any names, you know, the labor journalism uh -huh. sort of uh, program, yeah. if you will, that they were running? Did you see um, any evidence that any of the graduates did become well-known labor journalists? Any names you would have recognized? Um, 
I mean, not so much. I, I think uh, that labor journalism was something that everyone had to take who went there, so everyone could do it. So, I mean, there were some pretty good labor journals. Uh, and I'll, And one thing I did see constantly was a union would write Brookwood, like we'll use the Garment Workers Union. Uh, for an example, saying, we're starting an organizing drive in this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know? Do you have a student who's from here that you could recommend or who might know the language of the workers who are trying to organize? And so there is there is a hiring network that goes on, and people do write to Brookwood asking for qualified candidates. So there is, there is, there is little doubt that, you know, this training had some sort of effect on the direction of the labor movement and labor journalism uh, and just kind of, uh, yeah, organization in general. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think about, um, you mentioned that the Ruther brothers were there mm-hmm. and Victor, yeah. um, you know, one of Walter's brothers, sure, yeah. um, he ended up becoming the education director at the he UAW, did, right? yeah. So he probably got a lot of his tricks and, and tools there from Brookwood, I would assume, if he's running this this education department over here. He must have learned those skills from, did you learn anything? Uh, so I didn't look in the Ruther brothers file themselves. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's there somewhere. Uh, I just haven't, you know, looked at it yet. I might do that before I leave just for, for, for out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah. To see, you know, what was going on there. Anecdotally, Victor met his wife, Sophie, there too. So. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, that I did not know. So uh, <laughs> a lot of scholars have written about uh, Brookwood's, like, kind of educational project and its student body. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially the skits that they do, which oh, wow. is... Uh, uh, like labor plays are a big draw for a lot of historians. They're interested in like culturally how those work. The plays are interesting. I've come across a few skits and they're they're honestly kind of funny. So like like <laughs> scripts then or there are in the collection. Okay. So yeah, if if and anyone is at all interested in those, definitely check that out because there are a lot of boxes on the arts and skits project and how they manage them. So wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Did they ever have, it was mostly skits they were doing kind of for each other, or did they perform them? They performed them. Okay. Uh, like, I, I found a few references to, I haven't really followed those threads of taking their shows on the road a little bit and performing for various unions. Oh. Uh, and so it's a, or they'll be like, hey, our students came up with this cool script about textile workers. Do you want it? And, you know, <laughs> it, and so it's it's things like that that, okay. uh, that these these plays seem to have been fairly popular. Oh, that makes sense. You know, I think you yeah. see that in some other labor organizations too. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of like Teatro Campesino that the United Farm Workers did. Yeah, it's kind of an easy way to to have um, a discussion about concepts and and um, philosophies in a way that is um, a little bit more fun and digestible for a group. So right, um, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's another part of their project too build camaraderie between students, but also, uh, you know, find different ways of expressing the ideals of what labor should be and put it in, yeah, like you said, kind of a package that people can digest in a fun way. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In terms of other things I found that were, uh, that were really interesting, uh, one thing that I hadn't mentioned yet was that Brookwood was integrated. Mm-hmm. Like at, at the start of its project, so it had uh, black students there as well, and uh, 
they held conferences about uh, African American labor and how to how to organize them into effective unions. They were really interested in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which came about in the twenties and you know brought on A. Philip Randolph uh, as the president of that organization. Yeah, so. did they have any contact with the the Brotherhood or not? Yeah, they did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they held a what they called a symposium on Negro labor okay. in 1927, where they brought in representatives of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, of the Urban League, of the NAACP. Wow. Uh, oh, that's also worth mentioning that the NAACP actually put in a scholarship for two students. Wow. Okay. Uh, and so it, it goes to show that in the 20s, kind of that was firming up too, that uh, groups like the NAACP, the Urban League, were moving toward the direction of cooperation with progressive labor mm-hmm. in a way that maybe wasn't as established as it was previously. Yeah, and the NAACP was pretty young as an organization then yeah, too, so true. kind of an early thing that they... It's interesting to see that as, as they're getting established, they yeah. would choose to spend money and effort in that direction. So Definitely. Cool. <laughs> All right. Was there anything else that you... Wanted to get recorded and see if Troy can stick in somewhere. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that's a. Uh, I think that's good. So, cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I think. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. This is, yeah. this is great. We love having people talk about. It. And honestly, if we do them ourselves, then we have to do the research. So if we have researchers <laughs> come, then you guys have done the research, <laughs> yeah, and we yeah, can yeah. have you talk about it. Oh, so. that's that's cool. That was Andreas Meris um, speaking with Megan Courtney, and he's researching the Roaring Twenties and the, the various American networks on progressive um, idealisms, and kind of like saying, "Hey, there's lean years for labor," as I said at the beginning of this interview. But he actually is uh, going to prove that there was an underground let's say, we could say underground, there was a movement afoot that was growing and countering this this idea that it was the Roaring Twenties for the elite and not so for much for the downtrodden, but they were doing stuff, and he's going to prove that in his dissertation. Um, he was a Fishman Awardee, um, and folks, the Fishman Awardee is going on again. Uh, you have a deadline of January 22nd. It's the Fishman Travel Grant. And also there's another scholarship out there. It's the Shanker Fellowship that brings researchers here to use the American Federation of Teachers Collections. And that is due February 1st. So get your applications in. Just go to our website, www.ruther.wayne.edu, and click on scholarships. Say goodbye, Troy. Goodbye, Troy. There you go. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glagner and Troy Eller English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Okay, that was Andreas. Andreas? 
Yes. <laughs> I want. I want. I want to sing a song. <laughs> Please do. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's stuck in my head. A one, a two, a one, two, three. You didn't sing it out loud. Not going to. <laughs> Hurry, get your application in. Hurry, when's the deadline, you know? I don't know. Look it up. Mm. You have the computer. Shouldn't you know this? <laughs> I know it's January. No. Send your application to Dan, who doesn't know when they're due. <laughs>